Hey guys, welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast where I'm your host, Lonnie Swain. You can check me out on Instagram at Lonnie Swain. That's L-O-N-I-S-W-A-I-N. The podcast is on Instagram as well at Lonnie Swain Show. Now we talk about life, love, relationships, entrepreneurship, transitions, and so much more. This month in honor of Women's History Month, we are talking about issues that directly impact women, one of which unfortunately is sexual harassment. The Me Too movement has taken on some legs this year and last and lots of people are talking about it so one of the things that I wanted to do specifically around the Me Too movement is discuss it from a legal perspective what our legal rights are when it comes to sexual harassment and discrimination so today's guest on the show is Miss Tanya Banya she is a seasoned employment attorney with more than a dozen years experience handling employment related legal matters she's a Baltimore native and Tanya received her bachelor's degree from Harvard and her law degree from Stanford. After spending nearly a decade counseling and defending employers at two of the most well-respected employment groups in the Baltimore, Washington area, Tanya started her own law practice to provide the same high-quality legal representation to individuals who have been victims of workplace discrimination or other civil rights violations. I'm so happy to have Tanya on the show today. Tanya, first, let's get started with what exactly is sexual harassment? Absolutely. And, and I think that it's important from the beginning to emphasize that this is an answer that is grounded in the legal perspective. We're not talking about ideally you know, how we would prefer for people to behave from an ethical perspective or a moral perspective. We're not talking about you know, good, better, best behavior. We're talking about what is actually recognized under the law as, as conduct that will be actionable, whether it's in the criminal context or in the civil context. And that's really the focus. So, you know, that becomes a, a point of tension, I think, sometimes in these conversations because people are conflating the two things. And, um, and I think it, before we can talk about sort of ideally how we would want people to behave, we have to sort of set the ground rules and talk about and acknowledge what we're talking about and understand what is, you know, what is actually actionable sexual harassment from a legal perspective? The short answer is that really, first and foremost, it depends on the relationship between the parties and the setting, first and foremost, because conduct that would be inappropriate and potentially actionable in the context of employment may be perfectly acceptable if you're at a bar. Uh, And so people and that, that the setting really matters. First and foremost, if we're talking about the types of allegations that have been directed at people like Bill Cosby or even Aziz Ansari, I don't know if you saw uh, the, the stories that have been yes. published about yes. and a, a dating situation that he was involved in. You know, that is sexual misconduct or inappropriate behavior of a sexual nature in, in the private setting between whether it's strangers or casual acquaintances or people who are dating. In that context, really, the limits of behavior are defined by what's criminal. So unless something is criminal, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's not actionable. And what would be criminal in the, in the private context is something that rises to the level of sexual assault, rape, um, possibly stalking or harassment. In the, in the criminal arena, harassment is when someone continues to engage in a pattern of behavior that puts you in fear of either bodily injury or sexual assault, and they persist in that conduct even after you have made them aware that you want them to stop. So that that could range from anything from you're at a bar and someone continues to persistently hit on you and target you and you ask them to stop and leave you alone and they continue to do things that are annoying. That would include persistent catcalling and and street harassment uh, Mm -hmm. if it persists after you ask the person to stop. And obviously, you know, stalking would consist of following and other behavior. Again, all of that is after the person, after you ask the person to leave you alone, if they persist in that conduct, that is all conduct that can rise to the level of, of criminal harassment. And um, I just want to touch on that part about the importance of you asking the person to stop, because I personally had a situation where someone was emailing me in a stalking kind of way that was just making me feel uncomfortable. And I actually went to the police about it and they said, have you asked the person to stop? And at that time, I had not because my personal friends and family were saying, oh, just ignore the person, just ignore the person, just ignore the person. And I think that sometimes if it is a non-physical 
situation that people may be advised, oh, ignore them or block them or whatever, and you don't ever communicate to that person, hey, stop doing X, Y, or Z. And legally, that is one of the steps to taking action, correct? Absolutely. It is a prerequisite to a number of criminal actions that you could pursue against someone who is harassing you. And I think it's also a great example that you raised because I think sometimes our, our instincts or, or, you know, lay people's instincts with respect to how to handle these situations can be way off base. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand why, why, why friends and family might advise you to just ignore something. And I think that is especially common advice to women. Um, yeah. But it is absolutely counter to what you need to do to protect yourself from a legal perspective. You need to be clear. Uh, I think sometimes as women especially are sort of, we are culturally conditioned to sort of play nice and sort of, you know, sub- subjugate our own feelings and preferences to those of others. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. And, mm-hmm. and I do want to emphasize with it that whenever people are in settings when they feel that they are vulnerable to a physical assault, mm-hmm. if, you are, you know, if you are alone with someone who suddenly turns on you, you are not legally obligated to fight someone off. Uh, it, it used to be the case, certainly, that that was, if not a formal requirement, a de facto requirement to, to demonstrate that you'd been sexually assaulted or raped by someone against your will. You had to actually show that you had resisted. Um, wow. And thankfully, that is no longer the case. Uh, you don't, yeah. there's no obligation for you to, to put yourself at, you know, at greater risk of physical harm by trying to go up against, physically fight a man who is, you know, in, in some cases could be twice your size. Right. Um, so I'm not suggesting that that's a requirement. But if you feel safe, that you can safely convey to someone, certainly I would hope that through email or, you know, in phone calls or other settings that are public with, with other people around, that people would feel safe expressing their feelings. There is, there's no question you've got an obligation to express that you want that conduct to stop if you want to, to tee the issue up, to take more serious action if the person refuses. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also a misconception and what was kind of told to me because the speculation was, oh, if you tell them, stop calling me, that might rile them up or that might give them some impetus to kind of start pleading their case or justify what they're doing or just engaging them further was the the line of thinking. And I think that a lot of people sometimes have that like, oh, if I tell them, especially women that I speak to, they have this idea that, oh, if I tell him to stop calling me or if I tell him, you know, I'm not interested, then he's going to get mad and there will be more serious consequences to to, to follow. And, and, yeah, and I think that that is, is a very common belief and probably incorrect belief from a, a practical perspective and from a psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's people, who, people who have the propensity to stalk and harass read into anything. They will infer from the fact that you haven't said, leave me alone, that that's encouragement. That's a request for them to continue. And in my, my professional experience, I have represented people who've been stalked and harassed by Perpetrators who I would say um, have serious psychological problems, have, have mm-hmm. a propensity to, to stalk and harass and have a pattern and a history of stalking and harassing lots of people, that right. those people have, have a, a, an ability to become fixated on almost anything. In my view, the focus should not be on trying to read the tea leaves and, mm-hmm. and, and figure out how that person's going to respond because you can't ever know that. Um, but you do know that if you want to escalate things to law enforcement, you've got to tell them to stop. So that's, that's definitely, that should be the focus of the response, not trying to, to sort of predict what the, what the other person is going to do. And thankfully, most people aren't, aren't, you know, psychologically disturbed and don't become stalkers. Uh, right. Most people, if you tell them clearly, leave me alone, and they'll go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully in most cases, that will, that will be sufficient. But in those rare cases where you're dealing with someone who has either become fixated on you or just doesn't have the common sense to understand that no means no, you will have set in motion what you need to set in motion in order to escalate the situation to law enforcement. And that can be, that can be a long haul. That can be a process that takes years, which is another reason why I strongly urge people to act 
sooner rather than later because you can find yourself in a situation where you need to document and complain about something over the course of years before any meaningful action is taken by authority. Mm, Okay. The majority of what we were talking about and what you outlined as far as specific actions that could be considered sexual harassment were more so in a personal setting. What constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace? And is the need to tell someone, stop, this is making me uncomfortable, still apply in a workplace? So, yes. In terms of the, the, the second question, the need to, to, to tell someone is, is generally as important in the workplace. I would start before we, we get into the particulars of, of the employment situation, I would emphasize that there are other settings or relationships that, in which actionable sexual harassment and sexual misconduct can occur. Okay. Uh, so it's just an employment. And most people, I think, know this, but don't necessarily think about it because we are so focused on either situations like, like Bill Cosby or situations involving the workplace. And we don't necessarily always fold in the other settings where sexual harassment and sexual misconduct can, can be prohibited and com- can be actionable. And so I just want to start by saying that, you know, again, it depends on the setting. It depends on the relationship that the people have. But Sexual overtures, not only in the workplace, but among, for example, you know, certain professionals can be actionable. Healthcare providers, teachers, mm-hmm. priests, mm-hmm. Uh, even lawyers. Uh, we have ethical obligations that prohibit us from pursuing romantic relationships with our clients. And in, in many jurisdictions, there are laws that prohibit it as well um, that give rise to potentially criminal liability and civil liability. The focus is on whether or not there is a relationship that creates a, that establishes a power differential. Mm-hmm. If there is a relationship, there is a power differential. And we're not talking about, oh, he's famous and therefore I'm vulnerable to wanting to impress this person. We're not talking about that. We're talking about legal status relationships where, where we have recognized over time that there are people who have undue influence and ability to exercise control over other people. One setting is, in, is the workplace, but certainly that also happens with healthcare providers and therapists and lawyers and priests and other people who are in helping professions and find themselves dealing with vulnerable people. There are limits on what those folks can do as well. They, those folks should not be making sexual overtures to their clients, customers, students always going to be a basis for potential liability if there's an organization that that professional is associated with. Your, your first question with respect to the definition of what constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace, essentially sexual harassment in the workplace is a, a persistent pattern of behaviors and comments that are unwelcome and that are sexual in nature that are sufficiently severe or pervasive to change the nature of the work environment and create a hostile work environment. So, uh, you know, the the key thing that people have to understand is that in order for harassment to be actionable, in order for it to be unlawful from a civil perspective, and in order for an employer to face liability for sexual harassment, it has to be either severe or pervasive. So what does that mean? It means that (laughs) if Donald Trump grabs them by the you-know-what, that's probably sufficiently severe to be actionable. Telling you that you look nice or telling an off-color joke, things like that, which are, you know, far less serious, mm-hmm. you would need to, there would need to be a persistent pattern of that type of behavior before something like that would rise to the level of actionable harassment. And there is no bright line standard, but there is a scale, I would, I would say. And the, the less serious the behavior, the more incidents and the more incidents over time you're going to have to be able to point to uh, in order to establish actionable harassment. So I can give like a specific example of something that may leave for a gray area or how you would advise someone legally to proceed. A manager of mine had called me and I missed their call and this is a very senior manager and I called them back they didn't answer. And so I text them. I said, hey, I saw Mr. Call. I called you back. You didn't answer. Did you need something or did you accidentally butt dial me? And he responds, I penile dialed you. Mm -hmm. How would you say 
from a legal perspective, you know, what does that constitute as? That's inappropriate. That's inappropriate. There's no business reason why a senior manager would need to express that to a subordinate. There's just no, no business justification for it. And anytime you invoke thoughts about other people's genitalia, mm-hmm. that's questionable. It's questionable. We start, sort of started our discussion today posing the question about potential victims of harassment, like what do they need to know, and also potential perpetrators. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that you know, I have represented both people who've been victims of harassment and people who've been accused uh, mm-hmm. in the course of my work. And you know, I consistently tell everybody when I do trainings and, and, and have speaking engagements, just don't do it. Just don't do, don't, don't engage in behaviors of a sexual nature at work. Right. Mm-hmm. Hard stop, period. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think we've talked offline about the fact that there are still people who meet their spouses at work. Uh, yes. It's not nearly as, as large a statistic as it used to be back in the day when we didn't have social media and all these other mechanisms for meeting people. Uh, right. When, you know, 70% of people would meet their spouses at work, it's, it's, the number is much smaller, maybe even like less than 20%, maybe 15% now. But still, mm-hmm. people do meet their spouses at work. Right. Um, but my advice to men and women is to refrain from engaging in any behavior of a sexual nature at work, period. If a person likes you, and this is really more for men, if a woman likes you and she's interested in you, she will make it unequivocally clear. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to approach a coworker, I don't advise, but if you are going to do it, uh, ensure that you do it in a respectful way. And mm-hmm. if you're rejected, don't ever bring it up again. But again, mm-hmm. my advice is not to do it. Because mm-hmm. the reality is that once you, ex- you do something of a sexual or romantic nature at work, you direct that kind of behavior toward a coworker, they will forever view you through the lens of that's the person who I, who I think is interested in me, right. uh, which makes it difficult for you to have a professional relationship going forward. If that person has, has performance issues and then you are, for whatever reason, called upon to weigh in on their performance, suddenly they're going ha- to be scrutinizing you and, and questioning whether you are legitimately criticizing their performance or if you're just not salty because mm-hmm. they weren't responsible overtures it's just it's just bad for everyone so you know I strongly advise against it in all, in all contexts and I also strongly advise people to refrain from engaging in any behavior where at the end of the day it would be your word against somebody else with respect to what happened that's for, that's you know so early in my career when I was I was working and repre- working with big firms and representing big companies uh, I had a, a meeting with a client and it was out of town and we had to stay at a hotel to prepare for this legal proceeding. And the client asked me to meet him in his hotel room because there were, there was a large volume of documents that we had to work with and they were all in his hotel room. And we had tried to get a, like a conference room facility in this hotel and for whatever, whatever reason that didn't work. Okay. And um, so the client asked me to meet him in his hotel room. And my first thought was to be uncomfortable. Only knew this person from, you know, a handful of, of professional interactions and connection with work. Um, I was engaged at the time. He was married. We'd spoken about our, our you know, our families. Um, I'd seen pictures of his kids. I thought against that backdrop that, that, that he would appreciate the fact that this was a strictly professional interaction. And also, I asked myself, would a male colleague hesitate to meet with a client? in their room. And I said, no, they, they probably wouldn't. And so I did. Mm-hmm. And the client tried to kiss me. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And now me being the person that I am, um, I kind of mushed him. I have a fiance. We're going to mm-hmm. pretend that you didn't do that. Now let's go back to work. Mm-hmm. And he was embarrassed. Um, as he and, should and, be. As he should have been. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we went back to work and we didn't speak of it again. And it was, it was a non-issue. Didn't impact my career didn't impact my representation of the client, got a great, great result for them. But my, my sense at that time was that he was just a nerdy guy who didn't appreciate the fact that a woman could be nice to him and not be interested in him. Right. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. He was not a predator. He was yeah. not a predator. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I would never do that today. I would never meet 
not only with a man, I wouldn't meet anybody one-on-one in a secluded place that people associate with sex. I just wouldn't do it. You leave yourself vulnerable to accusations. You leave yourself vulnerable to assault. While I am not an advocate of the Pence rule, I do think that that men and women can be together one-on-one without having a witness. I do think Mm -hmm. people can have workplace meetings with closed doors. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think people can go to lunch and happy hour with their colleagues. You can build rapport with your coworkers. You don't have to be locked out of of professional opportunity because you're a woman. But you do have to, I think, exercise self-protection and good judgment. And again, I don't apply these rules only to women. I think they apply to everyone. Because I do think one of the things that has also become very clear as a result of this sort of Me Too movement and the range of accusations that we've seen is that no one should assume that they are not vulnerable to accusations. Men and women, women accuse women other women of sexually harassing them, gay men, you know, everyone should, should have the same concern when you are alone, one-on-one with someone, you're vulnerable to accusations, you're vulnerable to being harassed. Had you gone to your client's boss and said, hey, this person did this, or hey, he attempted to kiss me, does that constitute sexual harassment? Or my situation where a supervisor texts me that, does that constitute sexual harassment? Are either of those actionable according to law? No, neither one of those incidents would be actionable because neither one of those incidents was sufficiently severe to be actionable. You know, does it have the potential? To become sexual harassment? Absolutely. The senior manager who confessed to what, penile dialing? What did he call it? Yes, penile dialed you instead of butt dialing you. If that becomes a pattern, if, if, you know, if if that is one of a dozen incidents that occur over the course of a month, um, Mm -hmm. and especially if those types of comments are accompanied by invitations to to socialize outside of work Mm -hmm. um, that aren't to other co-workers, um, co- accompanied by comments about your, your appearance uh, mm-hmm. or invasive questioning about your personal life. You know, right. it's one thing to ask people if they have children, you know, just to sort of build camaraderie and collegiality with your co-workers, um, but you shouldn't be talking about your, the private affairs of your marriage or right. your dating system with coworkers. As a practical matter, I know people do it all day, every day. I know it, I know it is very common, mm-hmm. uh, but we're talking about sort of, you know, best practices and advice here. And the advice would be to never do it. You can build camaraderie with your colleagues without talking about your, your sex life. Dating. Yes. <laughs> Cause it opens the door for inappropriate Absolutely. comments and behavior. Absolutely. And, and, and don't forget one of the, one of the, pieces of the definition of unlawful harassment, at least in the workplace, is that the, the conduct has to be unwelcome. And so courts will look at, well, what, what, did this, what did the alleged victim do? How were they behaving? Did they do anything to signal, to, to signal or, or, or clearly convey to the accused that their conduct was unwelcome? You know, it's just like in the criminal arena. Did they, was there a request to stop? Now, in the, in the civil context, in the employment context, you're not held to the standard of a, of a clear and unequivocal request to stop. Unwelcome prong is part of the definition of sexual harassment. So the court, a court would look at that. An employer will look at that. They will look at whether or not you participated in the behavior, whether you did anything to encourage it. So another important piece of advice for people who, you know, could be potential victims of Mm -hmm. sexual harassment is you don't want to be engaging in that kind of behavior because your behavior will be scrutinized too. That is one thing for certain. If you are making accusations of sexual harassment, they're going to look at the accused and they're going to look at how you behave. And speaking of that, I feel like that's a good transition into the Aziz Ansari situation, looking at the accused and how you behave. Um, So in case anyone is not familiar with the story, basically Aziz and the woman who is referred to as Grace, but it's not her real name, they met at an awards party exchanged information, took a few photos together. A week later or so, they agreed to go on a date. They had an evening at a restaurant, and he then asked her to come back to his place. 
to which mm-hmm. she agreed. She goes back to his place. She referenced his countertops and he says, why don't you sit on them? And mm-hmm. it, it began to become sexual from that point as far as kissing, touching, and they undressed and he undressed her and she, uh, he undressed himself. And as she's recounting these events she's bringing up things like oh you know and at the restaurant we had white wine but I wasn't given the choice I prefer red but I wasn't given a choice you know making these little implications as though she felt he was putting this power over her or taking away her power more so from the very beginning she made comments like you know he requested the check so abruptly like he was in a rush to get me back home and I hadn't finished my glass of wine all at the same time never indicating that she told him she was uncomfortable she even made comments saying he asked me to perform oral sex on him and I did multiple Um, times yeah (laughs) multiple times and Then she did say that she told him at one point when he asked about getting a condom, she said, oh, let's just relax. Let's take it slow. And so he said, "Okay, let's, you know, go on the couch. Well, then they go sit on the couch and he proceeds to start kissing her again. As he asked her about performing oral sex again. She did it. She complied. But the the title of this article was, you know, I went on a date with Aziz and it was the worst night of my life or something along those lines to paraphrase it. Do you think I summarized it? Because that was pretty much perfect. The the main events and she was distraught. She was crying. The next day he even texted her saying, Hey, it was great hanging out with you, you know, in some random banter to which she replied, Oh, you know, it may have seemed okay for you, but it wasn't for me or it may have seemed okay, but it wasn't okay for me. And I didn't have fun and you should have picked up on my nonverbal cues. That was the exact term. And I consider myself to be a feminist, I think, in in most ways. And as I read that, you know, when she would say, oh, he asked me to perform oral sex, I'm thinking, okay, clearly she's about to say, I told him no. And he like tried to force me to do something. That was never the case at any point throughout the night from her statements that he forced her to do anything it sounded like you know a date experience where he was a little eager to you know fool around just and not even so much did it come off as though he was like pressed for sex intercourse but just that he was trying to make out and have some sort of sexual experience and when she said let's chill or let's slow things down he seemed to be receptive to those those right. verbal cues that reemphasizes the importance of verbally saying, no, I don't want to kiss you. No, I don't want to perform oral sex. But the thing that I was thinking about is if you were on this date and you felt that I don't want white wine, I want red, why didn't you feel empowered to say that? Why did yes. you feel like you had to drink the white wine? Right. Uh, because that's and, not even a sexual thing. Like to me, you can't speak up about that. That's as if, you know, like I'm a vegetarian. If somebody said I'm ordering a hamburger for you, I would say, no, I don't eat meat. I don't understand that. Yeah. And, and that's, that is, uh, that was one of the themes of that, of that particular situation that really, really bothered me. Uh, I, I consider myself a feminist as well. Um, and for me, feminism is about choice and freedom and agency and, and personal agency mm-hmm. and about women setting for themselves the boundaries that will dictate how other people treat them. Yes. And first step in that has to be, uh, unless you're in a situation where you are dealing with someone who has made it clear that they are willing to physically assault you and harm you and you are in fear for your physical safety, personal agency has to has to enable all women to say, I don't like red wine. I mean, come on, you're in a public place with a famous person. If you can't in that setting express how you feel, that's that's a much bigger issue. That is not a sexual harassment or sexual assault issue. 
that is a, a self-esteem issue that women have to have to get over. And and you and you have to be able to speak up for yourself in that kind of setting. You have no chance of speaking up for yourself in more compromising settings if you can't do it there. I don't think that there's any cases pending involving Aziz Ansari at this point. Maybe there are, and I'm just not up to speed. I think underscores even more one of the things that's problematic about this particular situation because um, she basically tried him in the court of public opinion. There, there is no case, I don't think. There's no complaint that's been filed, nor could there be because there isn't anything he did that was criminal or actionable in a civil sense. So you have this guy who's being maligned you know, and having his pocket threatened, essentially, because he's being painted as a, a creep mm-hmm. because he had an awkward experience with a young woman who I think at least as much to blame as he is. We can't expect for anyone to be a mind reader. And I think that she absolutely gave him at least mixed signals in yeah. this situation. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything that was described in the recounting of her experience that left me with the impression that he was co- you know, physically intimidating, that he was coercive in a way that's outside of what's normal, quite frankly. I mean, right. you know, men try to do. Like, you, you yeah. can't just sleep with every man who tries to sleep with you. Like, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And especially <laughs> under the circumstances, you go out, you have dinner, you have wine, alcohol is involved, and he invites you back to his place on the first date. I mean, what do you think he's going to try to do? I mean, I think it would be more of a a noteworthy scenario if he didn't try to kiss you, make out with you, or have sex. I feel like that's the play, that anybody that's been on a couple of dates before knows if he's inviting you up to his place, you know, kind of what you said, that I'm not going to go to a secluded place behind closed doors where it's known that sex happens with someone that I don't know and I'm not willing or interested in exploring that option with. Right. And let me just say, you know, I, I absolutely allow, allow for the reality that people's, people's minds change over time. So mm-hmm. she could have absolutely gone back to his place, you know, fully open to whatever was going to happen and change her mind. That's mm-hmm. fine. You say know, that, I've had that yeah, yeah, but I've say had that. that before, and mm-hmm. And in my sense, given what she, what she reported, is that if she had communicated that to him, he would have respected her boundaries and he would have stopped. Right. You know? Yeah. I don't think any any further sexual contact if she had made that clear, um, or if she realized she was uncomfortable and left. You know. Right. I, I don't think there would have been an issue. I don't think he would have tried to prevent her from leaving. So this is why I say that she's at least as responsible for any discomfort she ultimately felt. Because she didn't speak up and she sent mixed signals. When I'm giving advice to men, and particularly young men, what I will tell them is, if you know, a woman can, can choose to, come, to go to dinner with you or the most expensive thing on the menu, come back to your place and be butterball naked in the bed with you, you, know, you can have the condom on. If she tells you no or, set, or expresses some resistance or reluctance at that point, you need mm-hmm. to do the Bill Cox, not, mm-hmm. not the... the the recent Bill Cosby, but the old school Bill Cosby, when he did the pullback, you need mm-hmm. to pull back. He can mm-hmm. stop, okay, put your clothes on and get her an Uber. No mm-hmm. means no means no means no means no. And you should assume that even reluctance or hesitation means no. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm giving advice to women or men who are, who are dating people and going back to their place, what I will tell them is, if you don't want to have sex with that person, don't go back to their place. Or if you do, be very clear about your boundaries. And right. if the person violates the boundaries, then leave. I'm not urging people to do things that will put them in harm's way because there are people who have Jekyll and Hyde personalities. Uh, I went out with someone, this was when I was much, much younger. And when he dropped me off at home, said he had to use the restroom. I was like, okay, sure. No problem. Had been a perfect gentleman the whole evening. But when he came into my apartment, after he used the bathroom, he tried to have sex with me, like to the point Mm. of like hitting me down. And I wrestled him like for 40 minutes. To wow. get him off. Wow. Um, ultimately, you know, the, he became fatigued, and I guess he must have realized that unless he was willing to like hurt me, that it wasn't going to happen. He gave mm-hmm. up. But um, thank goodness. You know, right, right. But like that is an assault. Yeah, that's an assault where where I clearly conveyed to the person that I wasn't interested from the very beginning. Um, it was no mistaking my intentions, and you know, and I had to physically resist. 
him. Not this kind of like wishy-washy. And, and I also just am, have a really hard time with the fact that she engaged in as much se- sexual behavior with him as she did. And then the next day, like reported that it was, I mean, she made it all sound like it was not consensual. Even in hearing the retelling of it through her eyes, there wasn't really anything in how she conducted herself that would have, if, if I was a man, that would have put me on notice that she didn't consider any of that behavior consensual. Exactly. And one article that I read that was just talking about the incident brought up the point that here it is. It's not her boss. It's not someone that she would even feel like I have to do this or, or there would be some negative consequence for me. Yeah, that's why there's no case. So this is not a professional relationship where there is arguably some kind of relationship of confidence and trust. Yeah. Um, you know, you quote, just met this guy. He's a total stranger. There isn't a fame, like a, um, a fame obligation. There is no obligation. I mean, I, again, if I, when I'm advising everybody, but, it's, but, it's, but certainly people who are likely targets of false accusations, I would say, don't put yourself in a position where you're alone. Don't put yourself in a position where someone could make accusations that you wouldn't be able to refute. But there is no fame obligation. You're not obligated as a famous person to not hook up with people. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and some would say those, those folks are as, you know, are, are vulnerable as well. Like they want love too. So, yeah. and they probably are often targets of people who want to get close to them because they're famous. A lot of times I hear of celebrities now making people sign non-disclosures. If you come into my house, you got to sign a non-disclosure to make me feel confident that you're not going to go back and tell people what we did. Or you have to leave your cell phone at the door because, you know, just being put in compromising situations. And, and I would say that while I have not seen some publicity around Anzari's response. Frankly, I think he's been very gentlemanly in how he's responded, but I would urge regular people who are not famous to understand and people who would make accusations and create publicity around sexual assault or sexual harassment allegations for people who aren't famous. You need to be mindful of the fact that you can get in trouble for publishing defamatory comments and information about other people. And while I can't imagine that Aziz Ansari would ever sue this woman because it would just be bad publicity for him, it would look petty and bad. If you, if you put someone on blast on social media, just a regular Joe, and you say he did X, Y, and Z, and he can prove that what you're saying is false, you, are, you will absolutely face potential liability for defamation. The same thing is true with respect to, to making accusations against a coworker. If that person loses their job and the allegations are ultimately proven to be false, there, you can face civil liability for that as well. So in my understanding, based on the, the most recent statistics, that false accusations are very few and far between. So I don't want to give too much attention to the issue if it's not a real issue. But at the same time, I get calls from people a lot now with complaints and concerns about stuff that is absolutely not sexual harassment. It Mm -hmm. just is not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand before they put someone on blast as a harasser, that if they're wrong, you know, accusing someone of a crime or saying, you know, definitively that someone has committed a crime and sexual misconduct, sexual assault is a crime. Mm -hmm. If that's false, you can face liability for that. Uh, but if, if you're talking about something that, again, happens behind closed doors and it's my word versus another person's word, you can be sued. I mean, it's my understanding that Bill Cosby has tried, tried to go after some of the women that have accused him. And part of the reason why that's even possible is because we're talking about closed door events where, it's, mm-hmm. you know, a he said, she, she said situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people don't have to win their lawsuit to hurt you. You can right. spend of thousands of dollars defending yourself against a frivolous claim. What I've noticed, especially um, with women of color in the industry who have come forward in some situations about having had a sexual harassment experience, a lot of times I notice they don't name names. And I was wondering if that was for fear of some legal consequence, like, you know, why aren't they saying who it is? Well, I, I think anytime you attach someone's name to any type of impropriety, you 
expose yourself to the risk that they're going to try to take some action against you, whether it's formal legal action or some other type of retaliation. And retaliation is a, a real issue. Let's happens. talk about that. It happens commonly. And while it may be unlawful in many instances, there's a big difference between saying that something is unlawful and saying that people aren't going to do it. Many times when people come to me with concerns about workplace behavior, and, and, I, and one of the things I have to make sure they understand is, you know, when they haven't complained yet, even though their employer may have a, a harassment policy and may have an anti-retaliation policy, it is very, very common for people to face retaliation, either when they pursue criminal actions against people or when they complain about workplace harassment. And the consequences can go beyond the specific people involved. It is not, in my experience, unusual for people to face retaliation from other employers. When you file a, a complaint against your employer, you sue your company. There are lots of companies that, while it's, again, while it's unlawful, they will not hire you because they perceive you as a problem employee uh, or someone who is, is going to stand up for their, themselves and pursue their rights. Mm-hmm. And, a whistleblower. Yeah, a whistleblower. Mm-hmm, that's right. And, and, and employers, they, they, don't want, they don't want employees like that. I mean, they want, the people running the company want to be that way, but they don't want most of the rank and file employees to be outspoken uh, trailblazers and whistleblowers. They want them to be worker bees who do what they're told and keep their head down. Mm-hmm. So uh, retaliation is a, is a real thing that happens. And I always advise clients or potential clients that they have to be mindful of that. You know, the company may have an anti-retaliation policy, but my ability, I can't protect you from retaliation. I can't prevent the retaliation from happening. I can only hold the employer accountable for the retaliation that they, that they act in. Retaliation is unlawful. Um, what I mean is certain types of retaliation are unlawful or retaliation for certain reasons is unlawful. So actually, this is an important point because this is another area where people call me all the time and complain about things that are not actionable. Someone mm-hmm. called me just this week complaining about what he thought was unlawful retaliation because he had gone to HR to complain about something after his supervisor told him, okay, so let me, let me back up. So <laughs> the, the, he had reported to me that a female coworker accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. And his manager confronted him about the, the accusation. The manager concluded that there was no merit to it. And the manager told him the, the male who was accused, don't worry about it. You know, I, I don't see any merit here. We don't have to involve HR. Um, we don't have to make this formal. Okay. Well, the okay. wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted HR to do an investigation. I'm not really sure why, but what the woman reported, he acknowledged that he had done what she claimed. It just didn't rise to the level of, of harassment. But for whatever reason, he still wanted to involve HR. And so even though his supervisor, I think, trying to look out for him, said, we don't have to involve human resources. He elected to involve human resources anyway. And then he ended up being fired a couple of weeks later for, you know, alleged performance issues. Mm. That's not actually, you know, even if he was let go because he informed human resources that he had been accused of sexual harassment, that's not unlawful retaliation. Unlawful retaliation is when you experience some kind of adverse consequence for engaging in behavior that you have a legal right to to do, like protected activity that you have a legally protected right to engage in, or refusing to do something that you have a legal right to refuse. And complaining about something that is not unlawful is not a protected complaint. And that's a misconception that a lot of people have. And now, if I were advising the company, I would encourage most companies not to fire people for any kind of complaint, even if it's not a legally protected complaint, because it's just bad for business. You want an atmosphere where employees feel comfortable coming to management and coming to human resources with their concerns, and their concerns are not always going to be legitimate. Mm-hmm. But in order to have mm-hmm. an atmosphere where, where people come to you, you, you can't have there be negative repercussions when people get it wrong or complain about something that you know may ultimately be incorrect or frivolous. So that would be my advice to the employer. But at the end of the day, his behavior wasn't protected behavior and he doesn't have a, 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 an actionable retaliation claim. How do you usually advise clients on 
how they should proceed if it should be considered something that they would take legal action on. Because I think that part of the Me Too thing is, yeah, everybody's telling their stories, but what action is being taken? And I think so few people have previously told their stories or taken legal action because of everything that we're talking about. Backlash or it's taken 50 years, I get to court and they say that it wasn't enough evidence because something happened behind closed doors and it's just my word against theirs. What is the incentive, I guess, or how do you coach your clients on why taking legal action would be beneficial? I don't urge anyone to take any particular action. At the end of the day, my job as counsel is to help people achieve achieve their objectives, help them understand their, their legal rights and their options and empower them to exercise whatever option they prefer. And for many people, that that isn't pursuing legal action. For many people, that is is taking some lesser action to address what's happening. Um, But first and foremost, my advice to people is, and I know this will seem self-serving, but it it absolutely should be the first step in the process, contact an attorney. uh, Because HR, more often than not, is not your friend. Mm -hmm. And the company's friend. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They are, you know, at their best, they are at their best. They are, they have the interest, they, you know, good HR professionals and in-house legal folks recognize that managing employee issues um, is ultimately good for the company that correctly handling the issues, not just um, trying to insulate the company from liability. That's how you really protect your client in the long run is by doing things the right way. But in many cases, that isn't what's happening. In many cases, HR and in-house legal are there to protect the company from liability. They're there to paper the file in a way that will, you know, from their view, hopefully protect the company down the road if things escalate to litigation. Um, You should not be going through that process without knowing at the outset what your rights are um, and what your options are. And so I say contact an attorney from the very beginning. Um, In most cases, internal investigations are mishandled. There are a lot of things that you can do as you're going through the process to protect yourself and increase your leverage and your, and your, the strength of your case and your claims. If things escalate and you ultimately get fired, you know, I've represented, um, you know, victims of sexual harassment through the internal investigation process, um, behind the scenes, helping them understand, helping my clients understand their rights, helping them navigate that process and protect themselves and make sure that that process played out in a way that gave them the ability to, to negotiate a severance and, and sort of write things and set, set things right. When they were fired for allegedly you know, filing false claims. Uh, so my main advice is to contact an attorney. doesn't have to be me, but contact someone and make sure you contact someone who actually practices employment law. Um, because there are a lot of folks who say they do and they really, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, the main thing you have to understand is that the timeline for pursuit, there are administrative prerequisites that have to be pursued in many types of employment discrimination cases and harassment cases. And those timelines can be short. And so, you know, if you're going to do something, you need to do something sooner rather than later. I appreciate you taking the time. I think that we've covered a, a pretty good gambit of things to consider Is there anything that you think we haven't discussed that someone should know if they have experienced sexual harassment or feel they've experienced sexual harassment? One thing I do want to add that I don't think we've already covered is that um, the employer's obligation to create a a workplace that's free of sexual harassment, it it does not only extend to harassment by employees and and coworkers. It also extends to, to harassment by vendors, clients. Uh, and other third parties. So like the situation I mentioned with my, my client who tried to kiss me, that coupled with other incidents could be harassment that, w- that would be actionable against my employer. And my employer, had I complained, would have had an obligation to take steps to protect me from further incidents of harassment. So I know that there are many industries where employees come into to contact with clients and customers and other third parties and those, those folks can potentially engage in harassing behavior. That is not acceptable, and that's something that the employer has an obligation to address as well. But I would just emphasize, you don't have to suffer in silence. You don't. There are options. There are solutions. 
And I do think that things may be going a little bit crazy into an opposite extreme right now. This is an important correction that we're living through. And that, um, you know, I don't know that I, I would have been able to say this as emphatically 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, but you don't have to suffer in silence. And for people who have been suffering in silence, the atmosphere is different now. And you, you can hold people accountable for abusive behavior. And you should. And I guess that just made me think of something with the Me Too movement and everyone is speaking up and telling their stories. What are some other ways that people can take action as far as holding people accountable with themselves personally and or, um, you know, a concept that a lot of people talk about that they say does not happen enough is other people, friends, telling people, you know, even if an action is not directed towards them, but kind of calling people out. If, if you see something, say something, basically. Don't be an innocent bystander and allow things to happen to other people around you. Absolutely. And that, that's, a, that's a great observation and, and, and hugely important for men and women who are going to be allies to people who are being harassed or, or, or victimized by any form of unlawful discrimination. If you see something happening that's inappropriate, speak up. Don't, you know, don't tolerate it. Don't go along to get along. I think many times women, especially uh, women who, who have had some measure of success in, especially in male dominated fields, traditionally have felt like they had to sort of play along with the boys to, to be successful. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And I also don't think that people respect you when you behave that way. And so speak up. Uh, something simple that people can do who, who, who are either the targets of inappropriate behavior or are in the presence of others who have been targeted is to walk away. Like you don't have to, you know, get on your soapbox and give a 20 minute speech about the evils of sexual harassment to make it clear that you don't agree with the behavior. You can walk away. You can say, I don't think that's funny and walk away. There are things short of filing a complaint with, with human resources that you can do to send a message that the behavior is, is unwelcome and you don't, you, you don't agree with it. How can people get in contact with you if they need legal counsel? You're in the Baltimore area. Can you take calls or consult anyone outside of that area? I can. I, so I'm barred in Maryland and the District of Columbia and uh, routinely handle cases in those jurisdictions, but I do uh, on occasion represent folks outside of, of Maryland and D.C. Uh, with the assistance of local counsel, and I will do that in appropriate cases. I can't advise people without involving local counsel outside of Maryland and D.C., but um, I can be contacted through my website. I can also be contacted by phone. When you call me, you get me. And all of that information will be in the show notes so that uh, people can get in touch with you. Thank you so very much for listening to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. And of course, sharing is caring. So if you know someone you think might enjoy this podcast, please pass it along. Until next time, go where you are celebrated and appreciated, not just tolerated. Have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you soon.